We'll look at page 31 in session 4 in just a bit. I want to remind you of some things that are coming up, though. This afternoon at 12.30, we have our third and final tour of our potential ministry center, the elementary school that we're considering uh, purchasing. And we want as many as can to be able to see it and ask any questions that you have about it. So if you were not able to attend uh, either of the two that we had last week, we're having another one this afternoon at 12.30. So I will meet you there at William Taylor Elementary School in Trenton. That's at 3700 Benson. Uh, that is right between Van Horn and Vreeland and just off of Fort, right uh, just north of the South Shore Hospital. So 12.30, we'll give another tour. The tours uh, last week went 40, 45 minutes. And then uh, any questions you want to hang around and ask, you're welcome to do that, just so you have a, a time frame. But you'll be hungry probably, so you'll want to go and get lunch also. So just meet us over there, and we'll, we'll give you the tour. Related to that, today and for the next four Sundays, inserted in your program, there was today and will be, for these next four Lord's Days, a card. That is a, a fold-out card that on the front says third and goal, and then underneath says ministry center fund. So for us to close on this building, we have to collect uh, some funds. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to be uh, doing that. And we're asking all of the families in our church to participate. Participate at some level. You have to decide what that level is, and we're certainly not going to pressure you about that level. But we're asking all of our families to participate. And we're asking that you participate to the greatest extent you're able. And again, you have to decide what, what that is. I also assure you, again, as I did in the first hour, and I will over the next four weeks, that I will not know who participates and who does not. And I certainly will not know uh, amounts or anything like that. So none of those things am I privy to, do I ask for. That's our policy at the church. The pastor just, just doesn't mess with the money at all. So I don't count it. I don't see it. I, I can't. I'm not even authorized on our checking account. I mean, all kinds of stuff, okay? So all kinds of things to protect me from being biased somehow favorably or unfavorably toward anybody in the church. And also, frankly, it's a protection against any false accusation that might be made about mishandling of funds. So we have uh, just a, a small number of guys who do that, do a very good job of being discreet about that. So when you turn in that card over the next few weeks, it will uh, put it in the offering, and then that will go to the guys who count your normal offering. And uh, they'll, keep a they'll keep track of uh, the commitments that we have. Now, we make clear in the card, and I made clear at our family meeting last Sunday and in the email that I sent this week, that we don't uh, want uh, or need the funds right now. We just need to know what funds we can garner through this program. And then if that's a sufficient amount, that will help us determine that we can move forward with the project. If we do move forward with the project by church vote on probably April 15th, then a few weeks after that is when we would actually need the funds that have been committed. And if we don't move forward with the project, well, then there'll be no funds given. So right now it's just this is what we as a church can, can come up with. If we can come up with a sufficient amount, it allows us the option of, of moving forward. So each family participate and do so to the greatest extent you, you can. And if that happens, then we've got, uh, I think, a very good shot of uh, having the option of being able to move forward with that. Okay? 
So that is uh, this afternoon, and that's the ministry center fund. And then in your program, there are just some longer-range things that are coming up. In March, we have on the 25th our next baptism. So please mark that, our next baptism, March 25th. And if you've never been baptized, uh, as Jesus says to be, uh, he says to be baptized, and the Bible also teaches that baptism is being immersed in water as it's a symbol of death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So if that has never happened with you, then it needs to, and we would like to tell you what qualifies one for that and to perhaps have you participate in the baptism that we'll have on March 25th. So see me about that. We'll set a time to get together, a time of your convenience, and we'll go from there, okay? All right, session number four on the gospel-centered life. And in the first three sessions of this series... There has been a, a grid, a graphic that's been used called the gospel grid that if you've been here for any of those three weeks, you're familiar with. It's in your participant uh, handbook, but it is a, a grid that shows a point of conversion, a point uh, in time at which we come to Christ and we receive him as Savior and we bow before him as Lord. And he begins a work of change in us. His Holy Spirit is given to us, and we are gradually being changed to be more like Jesus. That starts at the time of conversion. And so that gospel grid has a point, and then moving forward, it has two lines that diverge from each other. They get further and further apart as you go out. And the top line uh, is titled, An Awareness of God's Holiness. And the bottom line is uh, labeled an awareness of our sinfulness. So we come to Christ, and then we begin the Christian life, and our awareness of God's holiness increases over time, and our awareness of our own sinfulness increases. And so what we see about God's holiness gets greater and greater. What we see about our sinfulness gets worse and worse. And so we're further and further apart in our understanding of God's character and our own character. Now, I've pointed out that it doesn't mean that God is becoming more holy and it doesn't mean you're becoming more sinful. The word awareness is important. It's, God's, it's our awareness of God's holiness, our awareness of our own sinfulness. But as we mature, we learn more and more about God and the depths of His purity and His holiness, His sinlessness and our own sinfulness and all of its manifestations not just in the things we used to recognize it by. For most of us, the things we did, our behaviors, that's all true. But we find that sin is much deeper. That sin is not just what I do, but sin is what I say. And it's not just what I say, it's what I think. And it's not just what I think and say and do. Sin is what I fail to think and say and do than I'm supposed to. Well, once I start going through that, I'm going, wow, I'm hopeless. You know, as you guys have heard me say, I'm just a big fat sack of sin. That's right. And so my awareness of my sinfulness increases. My awareness of God's holiness increases. The gap, therefore, gets larger and larger. And the question then is going to be, what's going to fill the gap? And this is where it becomes very important to live a gospel-centered life. 
Because that's the natural progression. That's what should happen in the life of the person who has come to Christ. Awareness of God's holiness, awareness of my own sinfulness. Those become further and further apart, but what's going to fill that gap now? And the previous lessons have pointed out that many of us try to fill that gap in erroneous ways. That we try to fill it by making ourselves better than we actually are. So we talk a better game than is reality. We try to show or put on a show to make us look better than we really are. Or we lower God's standard of holiness. You know, all God is looking for, <laughs> nobody's perfect, surely God knows that. I know he said be perfect, but he, I mean, I mean that's, that's got to be lost in translation or something. <laughs> he can't mean that. I know that God, the Bible says, God came to earth to die for my sin. That would seem to suggest it's really bad. But he can't hold me that accountable. So we'll lower God's standard of holiness. You know, I had teachers in high school and college that grade on a curve. Surely God's got a curve system. And he'll let me slide if I try. So we lower God's standard of holiness or we try to raise our, our own standard, our own uh, uh, position by making our, ourselves look better than we really are and that's the way we fill the gap. And so the two lines, God's holiness, God's sinfulness, they're diverging increasingly but the cross, which was big to us at conversion, now remains the same size for too many people. The cross is the same to me as what it was when I first came to Christ. And so I've got this gap, the cross ain't filling it. What will? And it'll be my own faking, my own judging, my own blame shifting. It'll be a host of false ways to fill the gap between my awareness of God's holiness and my awareness of my own sinfulness. The way it should go is the cross should increasingly fill that gap. So instead of the cross remaining to us as it was when we first came to Christ, now our estimation of Christ and his cross is growing because we see now the great chasm that had to be bridged by the cross. And we love the good news because the good news is that the cross is the bridge between the infinite gulf that exists between God's holiness and my sinfulness. That if you really take that thing out as a, you know, going into infinity, <laughs> that it would be the widest gap possible. And it will continue to grow. And it will never be bridged other than through the cross. But if we fail to get that, it will manifest itself in our lives in some ugly ways. We will be judgmental people. We will seek to judge others because we have to raise ourselves. The gap's got to be filled. We will be pretenders. Or in the language of last week, we will be performers or pretenders. We will try to perform for God to fill the holiness gap and do the best we can and hope that God accepts us. And then we will pretend that we are better than, than we are. 
So the blame shifting and the downplaying and the judging, these are all consequences. These are all symptoms of a false view of God's holiness, of our own sinfulness, and the means that we try to use to, to bridge the gap between them. And if you see that in your life, dear friend, if you see this tendency toward judgmentalism, being censorious toward, toward others, censoring others and their behavior and talking about, look at those people. Or if you find yourself downplaying your own struggles or shifting blame to someone or something else, if you find that happening, it's a sure sign that you have not come to an appropriate appreciation of how the cross covers our sin. And the cross fills the gap rather than anything that we do. And that brings us then to page 31 and lesson 4. Even a casual reader can see that the Bible is full of commands and prohibitions and expectations. It, the Bible, tells us what to do and what not to do. These rules or laws often present an obstacle to faith. Non-Christians often object to Christianity because it seems like just a bunch of rules and regulations. And you've probably heard that before. Perhaps if you've come to Christ, perhaps before doing that, perhaps you thought that, perhaps you said that. I have certainly heard that from lots of folks, uh, especially when I was out in the workaday world and had the opportunity, and I did consider it an opportunity to rub shoulders with folks who didn't know Christ and didn't know the gospel. And as I talked with them about that, this issue would come up often. A, a perspective, a view that says that, that religion, Christianity included, is simply a list of rules by which you're commended to God. Wouldn't you agree that that's the way most people think of religion? It's a list of stuff you do, and the better you keep it, the more commendable you are before God. And the hope is that one day you will die with his commendation on your account rather than condemnation because you have performed well enough by keeping the rules of the religion. That's the way most people look at it. In fact, the word religion comes from a, a Latin word. We get our English word ligament from it. Ligere is the Latin word. And we get ligament. Well, ligament is a, is a connection. And religion is the way we're connected to God. And if religion is this list of rules, then the way you're connected to God is by the rules and by the laws and the stipulations of the particular religion. That's the way most people think of it, and frankly, the way most religions are played out, it's, not in, it's, it's quite accurate because that's the way it is with most religions. In fact, I'll go further to say that's the way it is with all religions. All religions are like that. The good news is the gospel ain't a religion. The gospel's about a relationship with one who fills the gap. But Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and Judaism, they are all about, all the world religions are about how well you do in keeping the particular list of rules represented by that particular scheme. And biblical Christianity alone 
has the reverse direction going on. It is not us trying to climb our way to God by keeping the rules of the particular religion. It is God coming to us and doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so this idea that it's just a bunch of rules and regulations that many people have is not too far off given that that's the way all religions are. And our task is to show them that the gospel and biblical Christianity is something quite profoundly different from that. I remember when I uh, worked as a junior and senior in high school and then my first few years of college, for five years total I worked at a what was then called a Murray's Auto Store. Uh, now Riley's, I think. O'Reilly's. And uh, anyway, I worked there for five years. And so I made some friends you know, while I was at work, all of whom were non-Christians. And from time to time, as the weekend approached, they would ask me if I wanted to go out with them and some other people from work to do whatever they were doing. But it happened numerous times that as the invitation was being given, Ken, a bunch of us are going, would you like to? Oh, that's right. <laughs> and then they would say this, your religion won't let you. Now, what's the mindset there? You've got this, you know, you've got this disease called Baptist, <laughs> and it's got a bunch of rules and regulations that are designed to make you miserable so that someday you can hopefully be happy in heaven. That's the way many people look at it. That's the Christian life. Be miserable here so that I can be happy in heaven. And your religion won't let you. And I remember as a young person, one being bothered by that, is that really the deal? Is my religion won't let me? And so I had to think about it. And as I thought about it, I came to the conclusion that I'm sharing with you now. You know, the beautiful thing is, my religion doesn't dictate any of that. Because this is about a relationship in which God has changed my heart so that there are things I don't want to do. There are things I want to do and things I don't want to do. And the things I don't want to do are related to the things I really do want to do. I want to please God. So I don't want to do stuff that would displease Him. It's not because that's going to get me to heaven. It's because I now have this relationship. And He's changed my desires. And so I would kindly share that then with my friends as an opportunity to try to share the good news of the gospel. That the reason I don't do these things is not because we have some list. And we all know there are lots of people who have lists, right? I mean, there are probably some of you that have a list, not only for yourself, but a list for other people. See, and that's where, it, just as an aside, that's where it gets ugly. We all need to decide the things that we should and should not do based upon the teaching of God's Word. But you shouldn't feel the obligation to impose your list on everybody else. And if you are, if you do feel obligated to do that, you may be falling into that judgmental thing and filling the gap that way. But there are things I don't want to do. And so I would explain that then to my coworker friends that Christ has changed my desires. And I don't want, I, I can do those things. 
I don't want to do those things. But I would love to go someplace else with you. <laughs> so let's go here. And I would always try to provide an alternative. It's interesting that our friends in the world very often can only have fun with you if there are particular accoutrements involved, if there are particular activities involved. There's got to be alcohol there. We've had people in our church, Bob Pittman would not, would not mind me saying this, he's down in Florida now, but Bob came to Christ as an adult, but he had been an alcoholic for years. And he told me more than once that in his years prior to coming to Christ, he was absolutely convinced there was no way, he really believed there was no way to have fun unless alcohol was there. And he got to get around a bunch of Christians, and they're just laughing uproariously and having a great time. And he's like, the, I want some of that. <laughs> Where's that stuff? And somebody informed him, there's no alcohol involved here. How can they be having such a great time? Well, they got the joy of Christ, and they don't need some outside stimulant for that. But our friends in the world very often do not want to hang around you if you don't want to hang around the stimulant. And I advise people when they come to Christ, try to keep your circle of unsaved friends because you want to be a light to them in darkness. But do not be surprised if they don't gradually drift away from you. It's not you leaving them. Gradually, they often drift away from you. Convince that it's a list of rules that will commend or condemn. That's the way many people think of it. Now, here are the, some of the fallacies that underlie that. The idea that our relationship with God is based upon a list, even a very good list, like the law he gave in Scripture, has a number of fallacies that underlie it. The first one is this. It sees sin as a commodity. It sees sin in terms of quantity rather than as a state. Or to put it another way, it sees sin as the things you do rather than what you are. And this, once you, once you buy into that, if sin is what you do rather than, as the Bible actually teaches, it's what you are, which in turn translates into what you do. If you see it simply as what you do, well, then the idea is stop doing that. So here's a rule. Don't. Don't do that. And you'll be commended by God. But underlying it is the fallacy of what sin really is. Sin is not first what we do. Sin is first what we are. And even if it were a commodity uh, that you could count in quantity, if sin were discrete actions that you commit and you counted them, even if that were true, you'd still be in big trouble. Here's why. James chapter 2 and verse 10. Here's what James 2.10 says. Verse 8. I'll start with verse 8. 
If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Now, let's stop there for a second. So here's, here's one to add to your list of stuff to not do. Don't show favoritism. But then it goes on to say this. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Well, ever told a lie? You are now guilty of a, cap a capital offense. That means execution for doing that once. You're not only guilty of the, the, the particular discrete action of lying, you're guilty of the entire law. And all of the capital punishments that go with that. You have been sentenced to a zillion executions. Zillion is my, my number. You see, because even if you see it as a quantity, as a commodity, some discrete thing that I do that you do one, you're guilty of all of it. Because this is su this, God's holiness is such that that's the case. Now, you can try to lower God's holy standard. Good luck with that. But his holy standard is his character, and it ain't changing. So we all have sinned, Romans 3.23, and fall short of the character, the glory of God. So one of the fallacies underlying the list approach to religion that is universal other than biblical Christianity is a false view of sin as a quantity, as a discrete action that can be counted. Now the next fallacy, well, let me, before I go to the next fallacy, so you're sitting here, and I'm standing here, and we're going, okay, I get that. Sin is any thought, word, deed, any failure to think or say or do what I ought to. And if I fail in any of that, I'm guilty before God. I'm good with that. So I don't have this discrete action where I judge these particular things as better or worse. Sin is a state more than it is a, an action. And you're saying to yourself, I get all that. Except maybe you don't. If you have your own list of things that are the worst things that people could do. And I'm not asking for a show of hands, but do you? Do you have a list of sins where you go, how could they possibly? How could anyone possibly engage in fill in the blank? Now, let's be honest. We do that, don't we? And when we do that, we look at, we're, looking at, we're looking at that sin as a mortal sin and our sins as venial sins. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Can I get a witness? And this is what Roman Catholicism does. And why does it do it? Because sin is a commodity. Sin is discrete actions. 
Now I got to categorize the actions. And there's the stuff that's really bad and the stuff that's not so bad. Mortal sins are really bad. Mortal sin will condemn you to hell. Murder is a mortal sin. If you commit suicide, you cannot go to heaven because you've murdered yourself and there is no opportunity for that to be covered. So in Roman Catholicism, suicide automatically condemns one to hell. So you've got the list. Now the list is divided into mortal and venial. We look at that and go, wow, that's really complicated. But the truth is you've got your less sophisticated system. And I'm just telling you, dear friends, if we really understand the depth of our own sin, then we will be less inclined to make lists of sins that other people commit and then go, I can't believe. If you find yourself reading the newspaper and really getting upset at the way those people act, think about how you're viewing sin and the grace of God. Now, there is such a thing, Romans 1, as people continuing in sin such that the corruption, this is a key word, the corruption of sin is a downward spiral. And so we can read the newspaper and we can see the decadence of our culture and what we are seeing is the corruption and downward spiral of sin. But do not mistake the corruption of sin over time with depravity. Because guess what? That person you read about in the newspaper has the same affliction you have. They are depraved to the same extent you are. Every last one of them. And if left to your own devices... Guess where you would go? You would go on that downward spiral of depraved corruption as well. So not so fast on the, boy, those people that have these lists and all that, not me. Maybe we do. So underlying the idea that our relationship with God is based upon what we, what we do and how well we perform is this idea of sin being discrete, quantity, commodity. And then here's a related then fallacy. Here's what righteousness is then. Sin is the stuff I do. You can keep track of it. Here's the related fallacy. Righteousness. Righteousness is counteracting behavior that covers the sin. So sin's the bad stuff that I do that you can keep track of. Something needs to be done about it. Righteousness is doing things to counteract it. How do I know this? You know, go to a, go to a Roman Catholic. And I'm not just picking on Roman Catholics. You know, choose anything you want. They all have their approach to this. But go to a Roman Catholic confessional. And say, forgive me, Father, I have sinned. Well, what have you done? Well, and then you go down the list. Now, see, in that confessional, you know, you know what the answer is supposed to be? 
I, I couldn't even recount for you all the ways that I've sinned. But in this discreet, one for one, lay out what you've done. Ten things, fifteen things, twenty, whatever it is. And now what will happen? There will be prescribed for you counteracting things to do. So do X number of Hail Marys. Do, to counteract. So religion is the rules and regulations. That's what most non-believers think. They rightly think that because that's the way it is for everything other than biblical Christianity. It is based upon false notion of sin, a false notion of righteousness. And then the hope is at the end I'll stand before God and hopefully my good will outweigh my bad. And he'll say, come on in. And nothing could be further from the gospel of God's grace. Now that is legalism. That's righteousness by keeping legal stipulations, rules, regulations, legalism. And the Bible speaks to legalism in a number of places, but there's an entire six-chapter book written about it in the book of Galatians. And I'll just give you two verses in the book of Galatians, but the entire six chapters are about it. But in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 21, the Bible says, If a law could have been given, whereby righteousness could be attained, surely righteousness would have come by the law. Now, you read the articles there, the A and the V are important. If a law could have been given, that is, if any law, if any list of rules, if any bunch of stipulations could have been given whereby righteousness could be attained, then surely righteousness would have come by this law, the law, the one God gave to Moses on Sinai. In other words, what Paul is saying, who wrote that in Galatians 3.21, if there was a list of rules anywhere in the universe that could provide righteousness, you had it. God gave a great list of rules, and you're not improving on it. And yet, he goes on to say, chapter, four, it couldn't, chapter 3, nobody is justified before God by observing the law, because no one can keep it. And chapter 2 and verse 21, so you got Galatians 3.21, and then 2.21 says this. If righteousness comes by the law, Christ died for nothing. I mean, really, God has to come to earth and be murdered? When really all he had to do was give a better list of rules? God gave a perfect list, and if any list could do it, that list would have done it. That list couldn't do it, not because the list was bad, because we're bad. And that's why Christ not only did not die for nothing, his, his death is the only way for you to get to heaven. But that's a proper understanding of sin and righteousness. And if you don't have that, you will be a legalist, being right before God by rules. Or, here's the twin fallacy. If not a legalist, here's what people do. They say, well, okay, gotcha, preach. I can't do it. And actually, that's a relief. 
because now I'm going to party. I mean, I can't do it. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Tip my hat to Jesus. Let's party. You say, do people really do that? You betcha. Did they do it in New Testament times? Absolutely. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 12. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. Everything is permissible for me. Hey, now there's my religion. Give me a religion with no rules. A tithe of 5%. You know, we'll get a sign that says the light church. You know, 20% fewer commandments, a 5% tithe. Or how about this one? Everything's permissible for me. And do you see, if you have an NIV, do you see in verse 12 that phrase, everything is permissible for me, is in quotation marks? This is important. It is Paul who wrote it, quoting the false view of the Corinthians. They say, Everything is permissible for me. And then his answer, not in quotes, is the next phrase. But not everything is beneficial. Then he repeats them saying this again. Everything is permissible for me. And he answers, but I will not be mastered by anything. Not only says it in chapter 6, if you'll flip over to chapter 10, In verse 23, here's what it says. Everything is permissible, in quotes again. Then, unquote, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Now, you know people were engaged in some serious error if twice in this letter Paul has to quote them, giving their erroneous view of pursuing the Christian life because Jesus has paid it all, let's party. That is what 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 10 are saying. Am I right? That's what they're saying. I am right. Okay? That was rhetorical. I'm right. That's what. And Paul is, sees this as such an egregious error. He repeats it twice. He gives the answer to it, not only in those one-liners, but then expands on it. He expands on it as well in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 where people who heard Paul's gospel of free grace in Jesus, they heard that and they said, well, then it doesn't matter how we live, so let's sin that grace may abound. You guys remember reading that? And Paul is saying, you say, let's sin so that grace may abound. May it never be. For we died with Christ. And verse 14 of Romans 6, sin shall no longer be your master. Because he has broken the power of sin. And so you have the, the twin error now, legalism or license. And both of them are failures to see the gospel clearly. Legalism and license. In a church like ours, the reason I spent most of my time on legalism is because that is going to tend to be where we, most of us are going to fall. Some of us will fall on the... You know, further on the other side, depending on our backgrounds. But for most of us, and for me, 
the side that I would err on is the side of legalism. I've never had a licentious lifestyle. I didn't grow up with that. I didn't know that. My tendency will be to judge other people because of what they do and I don't do. I'll say one other thing, and I'll leave. And then you could read the next three pages and see if they confirm what I said, okay, in your participant guide. But, you know, if we're really going to give the gospel to people straight, then they should come away thinking, then, it, then, my, then my eternal destiny does not depend on what I do. And if I sin in the future, it won't keep me out of heaven. They should think that. And people heard Paul's gospel and came away with this, shall we then sin that grace may abound? Now, that's wrong. And he corrected it vehemently. But they got it from hearing his gospel of free grace in Jesus. And if we're going to give the gospel of free grace in Jesus, there are going to be people who are going to say, well then. And then our job is to correct them as Paul did. But we want to make sure that we are communicating a gospel that does not tell people to clean up their act or that they are commended before God because they've cleaned up their act. And that we do not live a Christian life that looks at other people as inferior to us because their acts are not cleaned up like ours are. If this is going to be a church that is gospel-driven, the first of the seven vital signs of a healthy church that I've taught for years here, gospel-driven. And if it's going to be a place where it is safe to be a sinner, it's going to have to be a place filled with people who understand that but for the grace of God, given in the gospel of Christ, so go we. Let's thank God for his grace in the gospel. And then let's uh, leave. And let me just offer to any of you who have never come to God through Jesus. You can do that right now. He died on the cross, but he lived a perfect life for your sin, uh, of righteousness that you were supposed to live, that none of us have. He kept all the rules <laughs> so the curve doesn't have to be given in the grading. You can stand complete before God, not because you're good, but because Jesus is good and because he did it for you. And when we bow right now, you can say, Lord, I know I have sinned and one sin separates me eternally from you. And I sin because that's my state. I believe Jesus died for my sin. I believe Jesus lived a perfect life and I ask you to apply what he did to me. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for the gospel of grace. Thank you for the profound effects that it has on our thinking, upon our, um, upon our doing, upon our reasons, our motivations. Lord, we no longer do what we do in order to get to heaven. We do what we do because we've been given heaven, because we're going there, because we're guaranteed of eternity with you only because of Jesus and his grace. We are now motivated out of gratitude to give our lives to you. Imperfect offerings as they are. We're sacrifice, living sacrifices for you in response to your mercies in the gospel. I pray, Lord, that every day I will see myself clearly. 
every day we will see ourselves clearly. And as we do, we will see others clearly as really no different than us. Sinful like us. Down the road perhaps further, but nevertheless the same road that we have trod and would have trod had you not intervened. Thank you for the intervention of the gospel. And at a point in time, we heard it, and your spirit moved on us, and we received it, and you've been changing us day by day. I pray for anyone here who, has never, who had never received Christ as Savior and the work that he did on the cross and the life that he lived of perfect righteousness, that they're doing that right now. And from their heart to you, in their own words, they're acknowledging their need, that they have sinned and that Jesus Christ is their only hope that they're asking for his forgiveness and that you begin that transformative change from the inside out in them that you've begun in us. Go with us this week as we live in the joy of the gospel. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.